Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, excellent. So, this morning we are, of course, continuing our series called Dynamic Discipleship, where as a church we've been working through the book of Luke. If you're a visitor here this morning, um, as a church we've been focusing on Jesus. It's always a good place to start, to focus on Jesus. And we've been looking at how he discipled others. We looked at how Jesus, we looked at a Jesus who heals and how he drew people to himself through his great and supernatural healings. We looked at how Jesus enjoyed spending time with his Father, coming back to his source of spiritual refreshment. It's so important to have that refreshment in order to disciple others effectively. And last week we looked at a Jesus who had compassion. He had a deep concern for the suffering of the people around him. He identified with them through their, in their weaknesses so that he could disciple them effectively. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the Jesus who taught in parables. Jesus was a storyteller. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that he was the greatest storyteller ever. He told these great stories called parables, stories which have very simple but effective messages. He told stories to the rich, he told stories to the poor, he told stories to the healthy and to the sick. He told stories to men, to women, to Jews and Gentiles, to the highly educated and the unschooled. Parables are both an effective and memorable way for getting the truth, God's truth, out to people. So why are they so effective? Well, we like stories, don't we? We love hearing stories. We love hearing um, of people's situations, people's, people's different uh, experiences. They're memorable. They're easy to remember. They're easy to follow. We can identify with them. And different people can take different things away from them. And most of all, with parables, they reveal more about God's character. So in the context of discipleship, what can we learn about Jesus through the way that he communicated to the people around him? Well, this morning, we're going to read two parables, two very well-known parables. We're going to read about the story of a lost sheep and read about the story of a lost coin. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Luke chapter 15. That's Luke chapter 15. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 10. If you don't have your Bible with you, not to panic, the scripture's up on the screen behind me. So Luke 15, verse 1 to 10, says this, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? 
Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbours saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep her entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbours and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Amen to that. So here we've got two very different parables, and yet two very similar ones as well. They're different in that what on earth does a sheep and a coin have in common? But they're similar in that we talk about something that is lost, something that is searched for, and something that is found. So what exactly is the message here? Well, it's that God actively seeks out people to help them turn their lives around. He's actively looks to deepen his relationship with us through discipleship. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So what does this tell us about Jesus' character? That he was accepting? That he was approachable? That he was non-judgmental? That he was welcoming? He didn't look past their sin because he would inevitably die for their sins. But it was much more that Jesus was interested in. He looked at their hearts. Jesus was interested in what was going on underneath. God detests the sin, but he doesn't detest the sinner. And he views them with compassion. He sees that they are lost and they are in need for a saviour. And they often came to listen to Jesus teach. So what does this tell us about the sinners? That there was something about Jesus that they craved. Perhaps something that they haven't encountered before. Something that only the Jews, God's holy people, were privileged to. You know, these were Gentiles. These were people who were originally excluded and suddenly things have changed. They were hungry to see the spiritual in their lives. So moving on to verse 2. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. I mean, think about the culture back in Jesus' time. 
that the religious leaders wouldn't associate with you unless you were considered righteous. If anyone should associate with Jesus, surely it should be, it should be them, right? But Jesus was different. He was countercultural. He revolutionized the culture and he brought in this new acceptability. And we should be the same. We should follow Jesus' example. So the first point is that Jesus retold the same message in different ways to reach different people. He spoke to different people. We've got two groups of people here. We've got tax collectors and sinners. And then we've got the religious leaders. He spoke in different ways. He talked about sheep. I mean, he talked about coins. And I'll unpack that in a bit. But he used the same message, that this was a message of redemption. This was a message of hope. This was a message of seeking and saving the lost. So what does Jesus do next? Well, verse 3 says, So Jesus told them this story. Hang on a minute. In the last verse, wasn't Jesus accused? Wasn't he mocked? Wasn't he judged? Didn't the religious, religious leaders cry out, You're eating with sinners. So what is Jesus doing here? Why isn't he fighting back? Why isn't he challenging them? I mean, surely this is not how dynamic discipleship works. Is it? How would you react in this situation? Being accused, being mocked, and being judged? So the second point I want to make is that Jesus understood them and their culture. You know, Jesus, in spite of receiving criticism for being judged for eating with sinners, he pursues an opportunity to tell them a story. And not some random story, but a story that is meaningful, a story that they can relate to, a story that they can identify with and suitable to the culture at that time. He spoke about a lost sheep and a lost coin. He spoke to tax collectors and sinners. Perhaps they could identify themselves as being those lost sheep. He spoke to religious teachers. Perhaps they could identify with themselves with being those lost coins. Possibly not. These tax collectors and sinners, they were despised. Their outward appearance, they would have appeared dirty. They were outcasts. And these religious leaders would walk around in fancy robes, pretending to be these kind of sort of majestic people, as if they, they were kind of higher than anyone else. These tax collectors and sinners, let's talk a little bit about their inward appearance. They were alive on the inside. But coins are not, are they? They're hard, they're tough. 
Where were the tax collectors, or sorry, where were the sheep found? They're found in an open field, they strayed away. Where was the coin found? On the floor, in a house, on a dusty floor. Perhaps these tax collectors and sinners, maybe they thought that they didn't deserve Jesus, but they sought him out anyway. And the religious leaders just thought they were better than Jesus. So what is Jesus' reaction to both? Well, with the tax collectors and sinners, he always welcomes them. He welcomes them. So what does he do with the religious leaders? Does he despise them? No. In fact, they're always welcomed by him too, except they don't realize it. So let's continue to verse 4. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Or verse 8 in the parable of a lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and search the entire house carefully until she finds it? So what follows here is this great story, this great story of redemption, a story that reveals God's passion and commitment to the lost. His urgency that no one, not one, should be left behind. That no one is insignificant, that everyone is loved, that everyone is valued, and everyone is worth searching for. Imagine being in a culture of that time and hearing this. Church, this is good news. As a tax collector or sinner, you were despised. You were looked down upon. You were an outcast. You were excluded. If you were blind, you stayed blind. If you were deaf, you stayed deaf. The sick stayed sick. Who would mix with them? And now they're hearing that God welcomes them into his family too. This is good news. But I wonder, it leaves us with a question. I wonder how many of us today are quick to walk past the same people. Let that one sit out there for a little bit. Moving on to verse 5. And when he has found it, He will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Again, this speaks of God's great plan of redemption. That the shepherd would joyfully carry a sheep back on his shoulders. So it leads me on to point three. That Jesus wasn't afraid to challenge their thinking. How much do you think a sheep weighs? Bit of a random question. Well, I don't know. So I googled it. So a sheep weighs anywhere between 45 and 90 kilos. So basically, between 7 and 14 stone. Imagine 
carrying that weight on your shoulders? Why would you do it? You'd do yourself more harm than good, surely. And back then, if a sheep ran away, it was presumed dead, perhaps eaten by wolves. Why would you carry it back on your shoulders? Surely, just tie a rope round a thing and drag it back. I mean, after all, it's a sheep, isn't it? It's a dirty sheep. It serves a right for getting lost. I mean, come on, Jesus, what are you saying here? This is ridiculous. Surely, this is not dynamic discipleship, is it? Well, what Jesus is doing here in telling this parable is that he's discipling his audience. He's challenging their thinking. He's piercing their hearts with his words. He's slowly bringing them to the place where they can identify with being that lost sheep in need of shepherd and a shepherd who would one day bear the weight of their own sin and bear the weight of their own burdens upon his shoulders. A shepherd who would carry them back home to where they belong through his death on a cross. Discipleship involves challenging some common perceptions. It involves being revolutionary. It involves standing out from the crowd, standing out from the norm. Nowadays, people are hungry to see the spiritual in their lives. They're looking to the world for their identity. They're looking to the world to provide that thing, that one thing that they just can't live without. TV, billboard posters, adverts on buses, they're all speaking messages of materialistic objects or services that people can join in order to feel like they belong. And it's amplified by social media too. Let me tell you all a story. So in 2012, some of you may remember this, a 17-year-old boy in China sold his kidney on the black market. And he sold it for the latest iPad. And he ended up with kidney failure. I mean, for a young boy to sacrifice his kidney and ultimately sacrifice the rest of his life to kidney failure for the sake of an iPad. Church, that boy is seriously, seriously lost. But these are the kind of people that we have around us. These are the ones that we work with, perhaps the ones that we bump into at the school gates or in the supermarkets, perhaps even members of our own family. But Jesus is inviting us to get around people like this boy, people who've wandered away so far from the truth, people that you just can't simply tie a rope around and drag back.
but those who we must carry, those who we must bear the burden of, and supporting them back to the Father. So this, the next slide, is how Jesus did it. Point one is that he did everything in partnership with God and the Holy Spirit. Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Luke 5, verse 16. And, when, and Jesus would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. I mean, I could go on, but I think those scriptures make the point clear. Is that Jesus, Jesus, he was in partnership with God. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He only did what he saw his father doing. He understood the importance of keeping communication open with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus often retreated to those desolate places to make time with God. Jesus was fully God. He didn't need to make time with the Father, but he was also fully man. And in his humanness, or his humanity, he has modelled to us the importance of praying to God and making time to be refreshed. Now church, if we want to be serious about dynamic discipleship, it's important to take care of ourselves too. It's important to always come back to God the Father and to God the Holy Spirit and get that refreshment. He's our source of refreshment. Church, to be discipled, you have to humble yourself and you have to humble yourself to disciple. We must realise that we can't disciple others in our own strength. Jesus didn't do it. And yet we think that we can. Jesus pressed into God and he operated in the Holy Spirit. And we can't do it without God's input. Discipleship is saying that I need someone to show me. Point two is that Jesus wasn't isolated. Verse 6, when he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And I'll jump to verse 9 and 10 in the lost coin. 
And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbours and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. I mean, what is Jesus saying here exactly? Is that he places an importance on family. That dynamic discipleship is not about doing it alone. I mean, won't the shepherd call his friends and neighbours saying, Rejoice with me? Won't the woman call her friends and neighbours saying as well, Rejoice with me? And when someone who's lost returns, it's not like Jesus has a list. And he's saying, oh, another one has returned in some kind of mediocre way. No, but there's a party going on, isn't there? It's not just Jesus who's celebrating. But church, it's heaven that celebrates. That's amazing, isn't it? That's awesome to hear. I mean, can you imagine what that must be like? That heaven is rejoicing when lost people return back. I mean, that, I, mean I, I almost can't wait to go and experience that, but I kind of can, because I don't feel like God's finished with me here. But that must, be, that must be amazing. I mean, I could just imagine the kind of sound system that they have in heaven. It'd just be the voice of God, like, booming out, wouldn't it? Like this line, like, roaring. I mean, that's amazing. Heaven rejoices, and so we must rejoice as well. If Jesus has modelled that, that heaven unites together and rejoices, what's so different about earth? What's so different about church? And just to take that point one step further, if you think all of us here have been saved, all of us, have been saved. And to think that heaven was rejoicing when you were saved. And that there'll be a party when others are saved as well. And I think to my own children that when they grow up and I know that they, they talk about Jesus but when they make that, that step of faith, when they make that commitment to finally take things that little bit more seriously, that there'll be a party in heaven. And I'm, I'm just I'm amazed by that. There's a real emphasis here on gathering together, that we do life together. So what have we learned about Jesus through the way that he communicated to the people around him in the context of discipleship. Well, the discipleship involves coming, coming alongside one another. It involves challenging people. It involves loving. It involves encouraging, teaching, supporting, understanding, praying. It involves your time. It involves helping people see a way out of their situations. Dynamic discipleship involves difficult things. 
involves saying no, involves persevering through troubles, involves knowing when to bear with someone and actually doing it. It involves a cost, involves our time, our energy and our patience and doing everything in partnership with God and the Holy Spirit and not being isolated but having your family around you, your church family, it's the best place for relationships to grow. Church, we disciple not just through our strength, but we disciple through our weaknesses as well. It's about helping others to follow Jesus. And it involves risk. That's why the 99 sheep or the nine coins were left. It's not that God wasn't thinking straight, but that God was prepared to make the sacrifice. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says this about the lost, that they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. I mean, that is serious, isn't it? That is, that is hard to hear. But church, if we want to be serious about dynamic discipleship, there's got to be no room for apathy. I think that it's so easy to forget what it was like to live without Christ, that we lack compassion for the lost. Church, dynamic discipleship is a supernatural overflow of being a disciple. There's this point on the next slide, written by a guy called Kevin DeYoung. He's the author of a book called Crazy Busy and Taking God at His Word. And he writes this, the one indispensable requirement for producing godly mature Christians is godly mature Christians. The one indispensable requirement for producing godly mature Christians is godly mature Christians. Dynamic discipleship it's about being that godly mature Christian. It's about being someone who pleases God every day and helps others to do the same. It's about being an active member of a church, understanding that you are formed to be part of a family and helping others to feel included as well. It's about learning to behave more like Christ every day, realising that you are created to become like Christ and helping others to do the same too. It's about serving sacrificially within the church, knowing that you are gifted for service and helping others to develop and strengthen and exercise their giftings too. And it's about sharing God's love and his forgiveness and hope with people who don't yet know Christ and helping others to do the same. Dynamic discipleship is about supporting people to feel settled, 
to feel safe and feel secure in their identity. It's about engaging with and encouraging people to live transformed lives. And it's about progressing people to achieve their full potential in Christ. There's one final thing that I want to mention from this story. This isn't just a story about redemption. But in this, there's a message that God places a worth and God places a value in the one. The one that is lost. The one that has strayed away. The one who can identify themselves with being that sheep. Perhaps getting involved in some kind of sin. Making mistakes. Getting a bit lost. Wandering away from God's truth. God places a value in that one. But he also places a value in the one that doesn't realise that they're lost. Walk around and thinks, yeah, I'm doing all these great things for God. I'm serving on a worship team. I'm serving in kids' work. I'm leading a life group. But not actually realising that they haven't connected or reconnected with God the Father. Or not drawing back to the source of refreshment. You know, we were all that one church that God risked everything for. He risked the thousands that came before us because we are worth something to him. And the greatest modern-day parable or story that you can tell is your own testimony I thought it was awesome just to kick off this morning with some testimonies. Wasn't it great to hear just how, how much God is doing in people's lives? Situations are changing. Lives have been transformed. God is in the business of working through people. He's the same God that he was back then in Jesus' time. He is so faithful. He's awesome, isn't he? Church, don't underestimate the power of your testimony. That your testimony has power. I mean, it's, it's a story with a simple message. A story that speaks of God's faithfulness through different experiences or situations through the blessings and through the incomprehensible times. In our old life group, we spend some time every week just listening to people's testimonies. Man, it was amazing. I just didn't realise, had no idea what kind of situations people have faced, how God has kind of interrupted through different times different places. I mean, it's, it's so encouraging, isn't it? And I love what Sam said earlier, that it doesn't have to be the big things, that God is involved in the little things too. I'm going to briefly share a little bit about my life and where I've seen God work.
I'm the eldest of three children. Sorry, I know we're a bit pressed for time. But I'm the eldest of three children. My dad was a workaholic, and my mum was an alcoholic. Both parents used to argue so much that they separated, and then they got back together, and they separated, got back together, separated, got back together. I mean, I've lived in a number of places all over England because my mum would pick us up and take us children so that she could claim the child benefit to fund her alcohol habit. My education was disruptive. At weekends, Dad would wake us up at six in the morning to study till the afternoon because he viewed that education was important. It is. I'm not disputing that. Walking home from school one day, a group of six or seven guys called me a very offensive word beginning with a P. I bunged off school, started smoking, started drinking underage. I also drove underage too. Had no license, had no insurance, no tax. I've been in trouble with the police about four times. Thankfully, I haven't been arrested. Maybe that just speaks of God's protection. But on one occasion, I was handcuffed, I was pushed against a car, I was searched. Another occasion, I had to go to court for a driving offence because I was driving and I didn't realise that my brake lights had stopped working. Thankfully, I was found not guilty. Then I became a Christian in 2000. A friend asked me, what are you doing on Sunday morning? So I said to him, I've got no plans. Why do you ask? So he said, you fancy coming to church? So I panicked, didn't I? <laughs> I said, oh, um, um, I, I obviously couldn't make anything up. I couldn't turn around and say to him, no, I've, 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 yeah, I've got this, this thing that I've just suddenly remembered that I'm involved in on Sunday morning. So I went to church. Didn't feel like I immediately belonged. But over time, it was a friendship of the people in the church And just the, I guess, the impact of God meeting with me that I then gave my life to Jesus and I became a Christian. From 2000 to 2001, I failed my driving theory test twice before I passed it on the third time. I failed my practical driving test, not the first time, not the second, not the third but four times before I passed on the fifth. Then in 2001, I walked away from God. I thought, don't need him. 
So I walked away. Then in 2004, I came back to church. I got baptised. 2005, I joined the prison service. I was about to buy a house, and it all kind of fell through. Then in 2008, I met Naomi. So we didn't start going out in 2018, but we started going out in 2008. A year later, we were married. I moved to churches, which was difficult, because there was a cost of losing contact with friends. And I wish I could say that the rest is history. I wish I could say that life has been easy. I wish I could say that life with with God is, is straightforward. Now, my job demands that if there's an incident at work and it's going home time, I can't leave until that incident is resolved. So I'm conscious that I don't want my children growing up with the same experience of a dad that I had. Now both parents have divorced, which was a hard time for me, because as a Christian, I should be pro-marriage and pro-seeking to make things work out. But as their son, and growing up with their, well, what I can only describe as their nonsense, it was the right thing. I struggle to do homework with kids, not because I can't do it, but because my experience of education growing up has pretty much ruined me. I don't like studying. don't like studying at all. So now, I actively do it in love. My job has made me detached from my feelings. For the past 15 years, I've been exposed to some pretty horrific stuff. That it takes me quite a long time to process how I'm feeling, if I'm feeling anything. And yet, In spite of all of this, in spite of the different experiences, in spite of the different situations that we face, in spite of the nonsense that we go through, we have a God who is faithful, we have a God who is loving and caring, he's proactive, he seeks us out, he searches for us. And he finds us. And church, we can disciple others through those experiences too. The message I want to say to you this morning is, whatever life throws at you, you can disciple others through them. Use those experiences. Let's all stand. I just want to finish by praying for us. I thank you, Lord, 
that you are the greatest storyteller ever. Lord Jesus, I thank you just for those parables. I thank you for those stories with simple messages. I thank you, Lord, that each and every story, each and every one of those parables is an opportunity for us to grow in you. It's an opportunity for us to be changed by you. We can be transformed by you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that our identity this morning is in Christ. I thank you, Lord, that we are covered. Lord, we are covered by your grace. Lord, we are sanctified by your blood. I thank you, Lord, that we now stand secure in the knowledge that we are chosen, that we are all accepted, and we are all loved. I thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, that we are hidden in Christ, that we can depend on him, because, Lord, you are good. I thank you, Lord, that we are safe and we are secure in knowing that you are truth, that we can trust in the promises that you have for us, the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you, Lord, that you are our faithful shepherd. Thank you, Lord, that when we stray away, Lord, when we, when we become a bit lost, that you actively seek us out. You search for us and you find us. Let us be found by you. I thank you, Lord, Jesus, that when we are afraid, that when we, are, when we have fear of going deeper with you, that we walk away from you. Lord, you don't walk away from us. Lord, that you have a hold on us. Lord Jesus, that we are free in the joy of knowing you, that, we, that wherever we go, Lord, we carry you with us and you carry us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are that true shepherd. And I thank you, Lord, this morning. And I guess I just want to pray for anyone who identify themselves as being sheep, perhaps lost, perhaps feeling dirty, perhaps wandering away in those open fields. I pray for us who can identify themselves with being those lost coins, perhaps doing everything so right, or go on and doing the right things, and not realising that actually what you want, Lord God, most of all, is just to reconnect with us. 
Lord, I pray for us this morning. Holy Spirit, come upon us. Come and refresh us. Come and change us. Come and transform us to be like your Son. And Lord, I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.